Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you are here. We don't have to ask you to be here. Uh, But we do pray that you help us to sense your presence. Uh, We do ask for a fresh filling of your spirit. Uh, We ask uh, that you would protect us against any uh, distractions. We pray for victory and spiritual warfare, even during the service. Uh, We pray, Lord, that through your word, as we study it uh, today, that we will grow, we'll be more like Jesus, and that you'll help us to overcome any struggles um, that maybe we're going through. And if any of us are facing any trials, help us, Lord, to trust in you, Lord, to get focused on you. And so, Lord God, I I thank you personally for giving me this opportunity to break the bread of your word uh, with your people. Um, And even if there's anyone who's listening who have not yet made the decision to repent and put their trust in Christ for salvation, I pray for them as well that you would draw them to Christ, uh, that you would, Lord, remove the spiritual blinders and and uh, protect them against the enemy who wants to snatch the seed of the word um, that has been or will be planted. And so, Father, I personally pray for the gift of teaching, and I pray that you will be glorified as I decrease and you increase. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are in Genesis chapter 14 as we go through the book of Genesis um, on Wednesday nights. And on Sunday mornings, um, 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., Pastor Jim is going through the book of Revelation. And uh, for those of you who may not be aware, we do have uh, a Spanish ministry um, at 9 a.m. in the youth center on campus on Sundays. And so, uh, once again, we're getting back to Genesis on Wednesday. So, Genesis 14, and the title of the study is King of Peace. King of Peace. Now, thus far in uh, the book of Genesis, we've come across some interesting characters, and today will be no different. And so as we study this chapter today, chapter 14 of Genesis, uh, of course, we're going to pick up what I like to call spiritual nuggets, um, and I pray a timely word, a word that each and every one of us need to hear uh, right here, right now, uh, especially depending on where we are in our lives Because I'm sure that all of us um, may be facing some type of challenge in our lives. But I just want to remind you that God is on the throne. And so as we go through the word of God in Genesis 14, uh, pray about, um, you know, a word that maybe the Lord has for you. and, And ask the Holy Spirit to help you to apply that word and to, of course, receive it by faith. And so in verse 1 of Genesis 14, it says, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedar-Larmer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. In verse 3, all these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the salt sea, in other words, the dead sea. 
And so we see here in the first three verses of Genesis 14, some type of introduction of the war. And so it's an introduction of the war before more details about the war are shared with us. And so we're going to see how this war um, even came to be. And so first of all, we see just in the first three verses, verse one in particular, that there was a confederacy that existed or consisted of four um, eastern kings. So you had the king of Shinar, that is uh, Babylon or Babylonia, then the king of Elisar, um, which Elisar could be the leading tribe in southern Babylon, and then the king of Elam, of course, which um, was the original kingdom of Persia, or at least a part of it, and where it says the king of nations, nations could also be translated as Goem. And so this is probably a tribe in northeastern Babylonia at this time. So uh, right now we have these four kings who are in this confederacy. And then in verse 2, you see that they're making war against these five kings. And so these are five city-states, in other words, in the plain of Jordan. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah were actually located near uh, the Dead Sea. And I mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah because the kings of those cities were mentioned as a part of those five kings in verse 2. And so they were located near the Dead Sea. And so those other um, three cities uh, besides Sodom and Gomorrah are also thought to have been nearby. And so we continue in verses four through seven. We're going to get more details uh, about this war, about how it started, for example. And so in verse four, Genesis 14, it says, 12 years they, that is those five kings, they serve uh, Kedor Laomer, who was probably the most powerful king in that invading confederacy of four kings. And it says that in the 13th year, those five kings, which includes the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, it says that they rebelled. They rebelled against Kedor Laomer. And in the 14th year, Kedor Laomer and the kings that were with him, they came and attacked uh, Rephaim, which was like an old tribe of giants. Uh, They attacked them in Ashtaroth, Carnium. They also attacked the Zuzim. And that name literally means roving creatures. And so these could be an ancient people um, who have some type of uncertain origin. Uh, Maybe uh, they're inhabitants of ancient Ammon on the east of Jordan. And so uh, these four kings attacked them and Ham. They also attacked the um, Emim, which means terrors, um, in in, um, Sheva or Sheva uh, Kiriathium. And they also attacked the Horites in the mountains of Seir. And so this was a region outside of Israel on the southeastern coast of the Dead Sea. And the Edomites, by the way, who would end up living in Seir, these are descendants of Esau. And Esau is the twin brother of Jacob. And if you remember the story, uh, Jacob, uh, his name was changed to Israel. And so the Horites dwelt in the place um, where the Edomites or um, the descendants of Esau will eventually live, in other words. And so they went, these four kings, um, they they defeated them as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And in verse 7, 
Then they turned back. These four kings um, led by Kedor Laomer, they turned back and they came to En Mishpat, uh, that is um, Kadesh, which is located in the southern part of Israel. And then they attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. And so the Amalekites, by the way, are also descendants of Esau through his son, Eliphaz. And of course, we haven't gotten to Esau and Jacob yet. So this is more of a heads up and it's a factual type of thing if you want to do more studies on that. But these Amalekites, uh, by the way, they will become the bitter enemies of Israel, the bitter enemies of Israel. And so these four kings defeated them as well. And also it says the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon, Tamar. And so these five kings, which includes uh, the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zoboam, and Bela, which is the same as Zoar, uh, they served this king, just to remind you, for 12 years, but decided to rebel against him in year 13. Okay, so this is how it all starts. And so in year 14, you see that Kedor Laomer, the one they rebelled against, now you see him just unleashing his wrath along with the other three kings, the kings of Shinar, Elisar, and the king of Goam. He's just unleashing his wrath on all of these um, other uh, smaller nations. And so after that, um, then they go to war against these five rebellious kings. And so in verses 8 through 12, Genesis 14, it says, And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim. Again, that would be uh, in the Dead Sea area or the Dead Sea. And so they gathered together against, verse 9, Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, or Goyim, um, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar. Four kings against five were going to battle. And so you had the five rebellious kings going against four. And so in verse 10, now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt. Or in other words, um, you know, they had this bitumen uh, pits. And bitumen is uh, black, uh, highly sticky liquid or a semi-solid form of petroleum. So pretty much tar. And so there were the, these pits there in the valley of Siddim. It was, it was just full of tar, full of asphalt, verse 10. And it says, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there. In other words, some of them um, fell into uh, those bitumen or those tar pits, as it tells us in, in, in verse 10. And the remainder fled to the mountains. And then they uh, took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah. So those four kings, they took all of their goods, all of their provisions, and they went their way. And then it says in verse 12, they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And so these five kings who rebelled against Keto Larimer tried to gather and, and they tried their best to put up a good fight 
against him as well as against his allies. And so, in other words, they tried to put up this good fight against the Eastern Confederacy. But you see here um, in these scriptures, verses 8 through 12, it shows us that they failed miserably. Even the land was against them as some of them uh, fell into those tar pits or those bitumen uh, pits there. Some ran away to the mountains. They were beaten soundly. They even had their possessions and, and even their food taken away by those four kings. And then on top of that, the scriptures tell us, and uh, this is going to help us to get to this next part of the narrative, that even Lot, Abram's nephew, he, even he was caught in the skirmish, and even he was taken captive by those four kings who were led by Akedor Lamer, the king of Elam. And so as we look at this passage um, in verse 12, especially, one thing we can see is that Lot, Abram or Abraham's nephew, is now living in Sodom. And Sodom, the scriptures tell us in Genesis chapter 13, verse 12, was a wicked city. But Lot, even still, although he moved there, the scriptures call him a righteous man, which is something I mentioned before. And to find that scripture or that reference where he's called a righteous man, you will look in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 8. And so this righteous man, Lot, the nephew of Abram or Abraham, which you see here is now he was living in the city. It said he dwelt in Sodom in Genesis 14, 12. But when we read in Genesis 13, 12, he, he wasn't actually in Sodom, but he said he set up his tent near Sodom. But now here he is in Sodom. He is dwelling there now, living in this wicked city. Now, as we look at the life of, of Lot here in this situation, and unfortunately, something we can pick up as a point of application, is that uh, this is the same type of movement, unfortunately, of some Christians, of some uh, believers, that they move toward or near. They set up their tent, so to speak, near a sinful environment or, or near a sinful crowd or whatever it may be. They may uh, start to get a taste of some um, wicked uh, show on TV or a website. So they start to um, tap around it, setting up their tent near Sodom, near wickedness. But then all of a sudden we see these Christians get comfortable enough and they begin to, to live there, to, to, to be more involved in, in that type of sin and that type of wickedness. And, that, and maybe it's a wicked crowd, a crowd that doesn't set a godly example for others. Or maybe it's a literal environment that now you are comfortable living in. You're comfortable living in that wickedness. In other words, this is called compromise. We we see Lot compromising, just like we see some Christians compromising today. And so as believers, we need to look out. We need to be aware of compromise in our lives. See, we should not be molded into the image of the world as believers. 
uh, but instead the world need to see us be conformed or molded into the image of Jesus. And so another way of putting that is that as believers, we should not uh, be a thermometer just, just showing what the temperature is. And, and instead, we should be the thermostat. But we, we should be the ones who are setting the trend through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, yes, we are light and salt. And so as salt, yes, as believers, we should bring the seasoning to the world. But, but also salt, by the way, was used as a preservative. So in a way, we should uh, be the preservatives in standing against evil or unrighteousness. These are the types of things that, that we should be doing as believers. And so, yes, we should be on the lookout for compromise in our lives. Beware uh, of if you're starting to set up your tent near Sodom, so to speak. Or maybe even getting closer to, to camping out there. So, so now you're comfortable in that. And, and here's the truth of the matter. Is, the truth of the matter is that as, uh, the more we compromise, then the weaker our walk gets with the Lord. And in verses uh, 13 through 15, just to move on, because we have a, a few more spiritual nuggets to cover here. In verses 13 through 15, in Genesis chapter 14, it says, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth or the oak trees of Mamre the Amorite, who was the brother of Eshcol and the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. They were on his side. And now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went and pursued as far as Dan. And so Dan is far north. And so he went that far in the far north of Israel. And in verse 15, it says he divided the forces against them. By night, against those four kings by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus, which was a major city in Syria. And so in verse 13, we see another first. Uh, because in the book of Genesis, there are a lot of firsts. And so here we see the first mention of the name Hebrew. And here it is applied to Abram or Abraham. And it could mean descended from Eber. And Eber, by the way, is a person, a man who descended from Shem, who was one of the sons of Noah. And so Hebrew could mean descended from Eber, descended from Eber. Or it could also mean one who crosses a border or one from beyond. In other words, he was a Hebrew. He was one from beyond the river, beyond, to get specific, the Euphrates River. He had passed over. He's one from beyond and came and passed over the river uh, to come to Canaan, the land that God had promised to him and his descendants who will become the, the Israelites or Jews. And so this is the first time we see Hebrew. And so in regard to Abram, the Hebrew, in regard to him, 
he received news from someone who escaped that Lot was taken. Your, your brother, it says here, was, was taken. And, and so when Abram received this news, he just didn't listen to the information, but, but notice that Abram did something about it. And so if we were to put ourselves in, in Abram or Abraham's shoes, I wonder what would we do if we heard that a brother or sister in Christ were taken captive by some type of sin? What would we do if they were taken captive by pornography or taken captive by uh, maybe alcoholism? What would we do? Would we just hear it and just receive that information and not do anything? Or uh, will we do like Abram and move and, and do something about it? What will we do if we heard that a brother or sister in Christ, a, a fellow Christian, a fellow believer needed some help? Will we just listen to the information and just say, God bless you and move on? Or will we do something about it? You see, we can learn something from Abram. And that he sprung into action. And this man, Abram, this man of God, he sprung into action and he went to rescue Lot. And as he went to rescue Lot, he says that he took some helpers with him who fought alongside him. You see, as believers, as we do the work of the ministry And as we engage in spiritual warfare, as we go street witnessing or whatever it may be, as we uh, engage in spiritual warfare in prayer, I would encourage you to have some people around you like Abram or Abraham did who can come alongside you and engage in spiritual warfare. See, it's a blessing to have our brothers and sisters in Christ there with us. Of course, we have the Lord. And the Lord by himself, of course, is enough. But he also created us as a, as a body. And you would see that terminology used in the New Testament that we refer to as the body of Christ. And the body works together. The fingers, the knees, they're, they're not detached. If you're a knee or a finger or elbow or arm in the body of Christ, you should not be detached from the rest of the body. We should be engaging in spiritual warfare together. We should be using uh, the spiritual gifts God wants us to use for the edification. In other words, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit gives to each one in the body of Christ a spiritual gift as he wills according to his desires for the profit of all, for the profit of all in the body of Christ. And so since that is true, and it it is true that we're supposed to operate as a unit May we engage in spiritual warfare together. May we come alongside one another and engage in spiritual warfare against spiritual enemy. And of course, we're not going to use carnal weapons. We're not going to use fleshly weapons because our, our enemy is a spiritual enemy. 
And so that's why the Bible tells us that the weapons of our warfare, the weapons we use to go to war, they are not carnal. They are not fleshly. They are not man-made. They are not physical. They're not carnal. But they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. And with our strongholds, strongholds are fortresses. And fortresses are used for the purpose of protecting. And so we're supposed to go to spiritual warfare and use the spiritual tools that God has given to us to tear down strongholds, to to tear down these fortresses. And so what are these strongholds? What are these fortresses? Uh, These are things, these are arguments people use in order to support their non-biblical beliefs. And so through the word of God and through prayer and through the power of the Holy Spirit, and this is why apologetics is important, by the way, because we can we can give an answer to every man who has the reason of the hope that we have within us. And as we speak the truth, of course, in love, then we begin to tear down through the power of the Holy Spirit, those fortresses or those arguments that people use to in order to support or protect those false belief systems. And if, we, and if those strongholds are pulled down, if those strongholds, those fortresses, those arguments that they use to support their false belief systems are pulled down, then their thoughts are able to be taken captive and be brought to the obedience of Christ. And so as believers, we are to engage in this type of spiritual warfare together, just like how Abram had his crew with him as he went out to battle against those four kings in order to rescue Lot. And so it's such a blessing that in this church, I know that there are prayer warriors. They're praying together for the same cause. What a blessing that is. And so if you just look around this room, of course, you can look to your left and to your right and you can see all of these spiritual warriors who are in this building even right now. And so we continue in Genesis fourteen sixteen. it says, so he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. And so here we see that Abram brought back everything and everyone that was taken captive, including his, remember it said, brother Lot. What is that about? I thought he was his nephew. Well, according to the new manners and customs of the Bible, it says that the use of the word brother to show various kinds of relationship is quite common in the Bible. So in essence, the term means, the term brother means or could mean a person who shares a common ancestry, allegiance, character, or purpose with another or others, especially a kinsman or a fellow man. So in other words, in this case, it's not contradicting. This is not contradicting the other scriptures that says that Lot is Abram's nephew In other words, brother here in this context just means relative. So in verses 17 through 20, so we have to point out all these little details because um, you you do have people who like to point out these quote-unquote inconsistencies in the Scripture, which can be fixed with a little bit of studying and prayer and and really reading the text carefully. Uh, But anyway, we pick up at verse 17, and it says, And the king of Sodom, he went out uh, to meet him. 
at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, which was somewhere in the vicinity of Jerusalem. And so uh, that's what happened after his return, after Abram's return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, he brought out bread and wine. He was uh, the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, uh, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor or creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. And so now we have this mysterious character. And I'll talk about him a little later in the, in the study. But here you have this mysterious character. And he would show up or showed up here after Abram or Abraham was successful in rescuing Lot. And of course, this man's name is Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem and he was the priest. It says here of God most high. And so here, notice that God is not referred to as just Elohim, which would be translated as God. He's not referred to as Yahweh Elohim, which would be uh, Lord God. And so when you see Lord in all caps, behind that will be the Tetragrammaton or, or the YHVH or YHWH. And some believe it's pronounced Yahweh. And so he's not calling them here Lord God or Yahweh Elohim or just Yahweh or Lord in all caps. It's not here calling them Adonai. But here, notice that he's a priest of El Elyon. And so this name is used here, by the way, speaking of first. Because we've been pointing out the first of a lot of things in Genesis. So, so here, for the first time, we see this, this, this name being used for God. El Elyon, the God Most High. But what that means is that he is the highest or supreme God. This Melchizedek is the priest of the highest or the supreme God. So in other words, uh, there is none who was greater than the God of the Bible. And, and in fact, this is what it says in Isaiah 45, verse 5, just the first part of that. God says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God beside me. And, and so this, of course, does not leave room for any other God now, keep this in mind when you're tempted to put something or someone in God's place. That there is truly none other than the God of the Bible. He is El Elyon. He is God Most High. Keep, keep that in mind when you talk to someone, have a conversation with one who worships another God or so-called God, someone who's a part of another religion or a cult who, who even thinks that they can get to that part where they can even become a God. Keep this in mind that he is the Lord and there is no other. There is no other God besides him. 
And that's because he's the God most high, the same God that Melchizedek was a priest of. In Romans 8, 31, second part of that verse, the Bible says, if God is for us, who can be against us? So remember who the God of the Bible is, that he is God most high. When we face different circumstances uh, and when the enemy comes against us, when, when people come against us, that we have El Elyon who is with us. So who could be against us? Yes, you're going to have people who want to fight against you or attack you. You're going to have the enemy wanting to attack you. But so, so, yeah, technically they could be against you. But, but the meaning of this is that are they going to be successful against us if God is for us? If God is most high, if God most high is for us, will they be successful against us? You see, some of us, we, we crumble when circumstances come into our lives that are not favorable. We come, crumble when people or the enemy attack us because we forget the God we are serving. We are serving God most high. And if he's for us, once again, who can be against us? Who could be against us and be successful? But notice this in these scriptures here that God is also referred to as possessor or creator of heaven and earth. And so after the Lord had been so good to Abram, you know, giving him great success. And after um, being blessed by Melchizedek, the priest of God most high, Abram voluntarily gave Melchizedek a tithe or a tenth of what he had. So we're not going to get into any deep studies about the tithe. Pastor Jim already covered that. But and in regard to the tithe or even with offerings, uh, this thing I'll leave you is that whatever we give to the Lord, that is between us and the Lord. First off, it's nobody business that between that's between you and the Lord. But there are some principles, of course, we can take from the scriptures that our gifts should be sacrificial or cost us something or And they should also be given willingly and cheerfully. And keep this in mind, that whatever we give to the Lord, that he is the possessor or creator of heaven and earth. So whatever we give to him, it belongs to him. In verse 21, it says, now the king of Sodom, Sodom said to Abram, give me the person's. And take the goods for yourself. And so now you have this king of Sodom coming into the picture after Abram had this interaction with Melchizedek. And so he wants the people. But then he offers the goods or the material things to Abram. And one thing that's, that's interesting is that the, the name of the king of Sodom is Bera. It means son of evil. And so he, re, he reminds me of what the devil would rather have. He, he, would, he would rather have people to rule over and people to oppress. And he, and he doesn't seem to mind as much if we Christians would focus on material things. You, you take the goods. You Christians, you, it's okay if you're rich. You, you focus on the material things, but, but I'll take the souls. I'll, I'll take the people. See, the same type of attitude with Satan, 
So as believers, as long as we're focused on material things, as we allow these things to become our God, then we're missing out on what God called us to do as far as reaching people for Christ. And so we should be concerned about the souls of people. We should be concerned about the people and not just, you know, focus on material items just so much or other things so much that we're not sharing the gospel, fulfilling the great commission. And so here, once again, I see this picture of Satan here with this king of Sodom. But in verses 22 through 24, it says, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, he says, I've raised my hand. In other words, I've sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to or, or a sandal strap. I'll take nothing from you and, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion um, of the men who went with me, Aner, Eschol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. And so he didn't want this king to be in a position to take any credit away from the Lord when it came to him being rich. In fact, he had already made an oath to the Lord that he wasn't going to take anything from him. The only thing he allowed to be taken from from this king was what was owed to the men who were with him as far as food and things like that were concerned. And so there's some people we need to, of course, watch out for because there's some people who would like to do things for you, but they don't have a pure motive. They want to do something good for you so that they would get the credit and so that you would always feel indebted to them. So rely on the Lord and not people. But of course, can God use people? Absolutely. He uses people in the body of Christ all the time. But don't allow yourself to be in a position to where men, even yourself, would get the credit. And when I say men, I mean mankind, humans would get the credit. Like I said, including yourself instead of the Lord. But you see that the enemy, the spiritual enemy, the devil is this way as well. He wants the credit that belongs to the Lord. He wants the Lord's glory. So don't let let anybody be in a position in your life to where they feel or think that they should get more credit than the Lord gets for your success or for your blessings. And there are some ways we can guard against that, against allowing anything else or anyone else to be in a position in our lives to where they would get the credit. How do we guard against that? Well, first of all, we don't rush into things. We don't rush into things. The second way we can guard ourselves against somebody being in a position in our lives to, to, to get the credit that belongs to the Lord is to not panic. But then number three, we, we don't put people where God should be in our lives. We stay loyal to him. There was a brother in Christ, I remember, he had this saying to be loyal to the royal, speaking of the Lord. And then, of course, to guard yourself against this, against allowing people to be in a position in your life where they feel they should get the credit for your success or blessings. It's to pray for guidance and and to also pray for wisdom. And wisdom, by the way, is more than knowledge. It's more than the accumulation of information. Wisdom is taking what you know and putting it into practice. It is a skill in living, in other words. So pray for guidance and wisdom. 
And so with that being said, we want to go back to this mysterious character. We want to go back to Melchizedek, Melchizedek, who first shows up in the Bible in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. And so who is this mysterious character? Who is this Melchizedek? You see, first of all, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. King of righteousness. And the scriptures also tell us that he was the king of Salem. And Salem, by the way, refers to ancient Jerusalem. And Salem, by the way, means peace. And Melchizedek also served, we see from the scriptures, as priest of God Most High. Now, God Most High is how pagan kings might have referred to the God of Israel, those who were non-Jewish they, they were referred to the true God as God most high to show he was different from these idol gods. And this priest would, would give Abram the wine and bread, which reminds us of communion, which we're partaking in tonight. So, of course, it reminds us of communion. And so this is what this priest did in the study. And so some strange things But his name, Melchizedek, also appears elsewhere. For example, in Psalm 110, verse 4, it says that the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So this is speaking of the Messiah. It's speaking of the type of priesthood that he would have. That he will be a priest forever, according to this order, the order of Melchizedek, which is a higher type of priesthood. But his name also shows up in Hebrews uh, chapters 5 through 7. And so in Hebrews 7 verses 1 through 10, I'll, I'll just read those real quick. It says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. And it says he blessed him to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. He was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains, it says, a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth or a tithe of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better." Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So Melchizedek has a higher order of priesthood than the Levitical priesthood than the Aaronic priesthood because Aaron was of the tribe of Levi. And so in order to be a high priest, you have to, of course, be from Levi, but also a descendant of Aaron. But Melchizedek's priesthood is even higher than that uh, because while he was in the loins, so to speak, of Abraham, he gave tithes to this priest, this priest of, the, of God Most High. 
interesting stuff said about him. So is this Melchizedek something of what we call a Christophany or a type of Christ? And so there's opinions both ways. And by the way, some people have even thought this was maybe Shem. Okay, so I don't, I don't go along with that view. But, but some conclude that Melchizedek is a Christophany. That means he's an Old Testament appearance of Christ before he became the babe lying in a manger in Bethlehem. For besides the meaning of the name and the fact that he was king of Salem, some believe what we read in Hebrews 7, 3, without father, without mother, and so forth. Some people believe that it adds to the point that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. For those who hold this, ver- this, this uh, view, they believe that this verse is saying that Melchizedek literally did not have parents or a genealogy or wasn't born or, or die, nor did he die. Okay, so that's one view. That this is a Christophany, Old Testament appearance of Christ, speaking of Melchizedek. And so another view is that, um, this is one of the major views, is that Melchizedek is not the pre-incarnate Christ, but he's a type or a prophetic symbol or a picture of Christ. And so those who hold this view believe he's a historical king of Salem and a historical priest. For example, uh, which goes along with this view, there is uh, mention of another king in Jerusalem whose name was Adonai Zedek. So the same type of uh, suffix there, Zedek, and his name meant my Lord is righteous. So that was another king of Jerusalem. And so king of righteousness, by the way, and king of peace, uh, for those who hold this view that this is a type of Christ, that he is a type of Christ, just believe that he describes who Jesus is, that this, this name, these titles describe who Jesus is. And so according to this view, it's just saying that, you know, Hebrews 7, 3, when it says there's no genealogy, so forth, that, that it's not mentioned in Scripture. So it doesn't mean he doesn't have family or a genealogy, just that he's not mentioned in Scripture. You know, God left it out on purpose. And so they would say that um, the lack of details about his life, it helped to draw a parallel between Jesus and this character Melchizedek. And so to support this view, you have the words like and likeness in this chapter. And so when you use the words like or, or as in figurative language, of course, that will be a simile. And so uh, personally, I do lean this way that that this would be that Melchizedek is more of a type of Christ because I believe that the details God included and left out on purpose in Genesis 14, I believe God allowed that to appear in the text the way it did in order to paint a better picture of Christ, that he would be a king of righteousness, that he would be a king of peace. And then another thing is that in Christophanes, when he appeared as Christophanes, he would appear and disappear. But this king, Melchizedek, it seems that he, he actually lived his, his whole life as king there. Not his whole life, but it, it seemed like more of a long-term situation, whereas a Christophany, it, it, he comes and goes. And not only that, but in Hebrews uh, chapter 7, verse 15, this is what it says, speaking of Melchizedek as a type. It says, and it is yet, it says it is yet uh, far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest. So the word another 
seems to indicate these are two separate people, but God allowed de- some details to be included and some left out in order to show the similarities between the two. And so he is after the order of Melchizedek, but despite which view you hold, the, the point of Hebrews 7 is to paint a picture of the su- superiority of Christ, that he has this, this priesthood that is like no other, that is even over the Levitical priesthood. So whether you see Melchizedek as a Christophany or a type of Christ, what we want to do is use the information we know about him and we want to look at some truths about Jesus as high priest. You see, as high priest, Jesus represents, like Melchizedek, he represents us to God and he represents God to mankind. But also as high priest, like Melchizedek, and Melchizedek doesn't say he shed his own blood, but as high priest, Jesus, he did make a sacrifice, but he didn't sacrifice animals. He, it says that he shed his own blood. And so his, his blood is effective for all eternity. And so this Jesus, after the order of Melchizedek, has this higher priesthood than, than Aaron, than the Aaronic priesthood. But then from these facts about Melchizedek, one thing we can learn about Jesus is that, yes, he is a king of righteousness. You see, he is a righteous judge. He always does what's right. He always judges properly. But he's also the king of peace. You see, uh, Psalm 85.10 says, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. You see, on the cross and in the person of Jesus, you will see that mercy and truth, they have joined together. And also on the cross and in the person of Jesus, being the king of righteousness and being the king of Salem or the king of peace, we see that in Christ, that righteousness and peace indeed do touch and they kiss each other. He is the king of righteousness But he's also, of course, and I emphasize this, and this is the title of the study. He's the king of peace as the worship team takes the stage. You see, first of all, as the king of peace, he offers peace between mankind and God because it is our sin that separates us from God. And so he offers his peace between humans and the Lord. And also as the king of peace, as the king of Salem, as you will, he broke down, it says, the wall uh, between the Gentiles and the Jews. So now believing Jews and believing Gentiles, the non-Jews, they could be made both one. They could be a part of one church now if they both, Jews and Gentile, repent and put their trust in Jesus. And so he broke down that wall. So there's peace now between many believing Jews and believing Gentiles. But, but also as the king of peace, the scriptures tell us that when he comes back and reigns on this earth, there's going to be worldwide peace on this earth. Even animals that normally would go against each other, they're going to be at peace with each other. There's not going to be any, any weapons during the millennial reign of Christ because there's going to be worldwide peace because the king of peace is going to be ruling from Jerusalem, his headquarters during that literal 1000 reign of Christ. But then get this about the king of peace is that he gives us personal peace. 
And is there anybody today who needs some personal peace in your lives? Maybe there's some financial situations in your life that are awry. Maybe there's some family situations. Maybe you have some adult children and they're going astray and you've been praying for them for years and you need a little peace in your life. Maybe there's some craziness going on at the job or in your community. You can look around the world. You can look in your city, your state, in this country. You can see the craziness that's going on. And I bet you, you need a little peace in your life. In other words, you need to be free from worry. You need your soul to be free from agitation. We need the king of peace in our lives. And so I'd encourage you to allow the peace, the God of peace, the king of peace to step into your situation and give you that peace that only he can give. But get this, we can only have this peace if first we have peace with God. You see, if we have peace with God, then we're open to receiving the peace of God. Amen? And so at this time, we're going to have communion. We're going to go a little over. Sorry about that. But we have the elements here at the front and in the back. The bread, of course, represents the, uh, the, bread represents the body of Christ. The juice represents his blood. And so as we partake, evaluate whether or not you're in an unworthy lifestyle. Pray about it. Ask the Lord to forgive you if that's the case. But also let it be a time of gratitude. Let it be a time of reverence. Uh, Let it be a time, of course, it's the main thing to remember him, to remember his sacrifice. Well, Father God, we thank you for the body and blood of Jesus. And we pray over these elements that you'll bless them. We pray that you'll be glorified in this time. And Lord, as we leave this place, but not your presence, may you bless and keep each and every person who's here tonight. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Let's uh, can go ahead as you feel moved and grab the elements, take them to your seat and partake. Amen. God bless you. May God keep you and we love you. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.